We are live here with Mandisa Thomas. Mandisa, thank you so much for being on my little channel here. I appreciate it. No problem. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Oh my gosh. I mean, seriously, I mean, it's, it's, really, <laughs> it's really a pleasure for me. So for those who don't know, Mandisa is the founder and president of Black Nonbelievers. Uh, Mandisa has appeared on CBS News, NPR's Code Switch podcast, Freedom From Religion Foundation's Free Thought Radio. You've been profiled in Jet Magazine and Playboy, was featured in documentaries like Contradiction and My Week in Atheism. Um, let's see, back in uh, 2013, you did the Blackout Secular Rally, which was huge. It was the first of its kind, a, a, an outdoor event headlined by non-theists of color. Um, in 2019, there was the, the SSA Backbone Award and the Free Thought Heroin Award from the Freedom From Religion Foundation. Uh, you're on the board for uh, American Humanists, uh, and American Humanist Association. Is that, am I doubling up? American Atheists and the American, American Humanist Association, American yes. <laughs> All right. And then this year, recently, was honored um, by Harvard University, along with uh, Ijeoma Oluo and mm -hmm. uh, Hutchinson. Um, can you tell us a little bit about what that, what that award was and, and, and why they chose you three powerhouses to give that award to? Uh, well, interestingly enough, it was actually we were the first we were the first black women to have been who have received this particular award. And so the humanist community at Harvard um, honors uh, some some very powerful and notable humanists every year with their Harvard Humanist of the Year Award. And so this year in particular, which presented some serious challenges, not just with the pandemic, but also um, matters of racial justice and how black women in particular, our roles in these in movements uh, tend to be pretty obscured and we often go uncredited and also yeah. undercompensated. And yeah. so this year, um, the humanist community at Harvard along with the American Humanist Association teamed up to um, you know, co uh, to uh, present uh, the three of us, uh, myself, Sakibu, and Ijoma, um, three uh, Black women humanists who represent um, strong, um, a strong uh, social change and, 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 uh, and, and are reshaping that narrative of what it means to not just be Black, but Black women and also non-religious humanists. That's, I mean, it, it, I mean, to be a, a triple minority in that sense is, uh, I mean, <laughs> it's, it's about like having the deck stacked against you in, in our culture and our society. And the, I mean, the work that the, the three of you have done is, I mean, it can't be overstated. Um, and it's just such a credit to who all of you are as people um, to be working so hard in these ways. Um, and I, uh, I have to draw attention to the, the fact that skepticism, humanism, free thought, atheism, these are not new in the the African-American tradition. Um, Correct. I've realized I've forgotten to plug my headphones in. Let me do this so I don't run into any sound issues here. Um, but before we went live, I was mentioning figures like A. Philip Randolph, who yes. was Humanist of the Year back in 1970 from American Humanist Association. Um, and, and figures that I became familiar with, um, we, we talked about when I, when I lived in Harlem, um, figures like Zora Neale Hurston, uh, reading about figures like Hubert Henry Harrison, um, reading you know, Lorraine Hansberry. I mean, there's so many people out there that um, have been obscured. Uh, so in light of all of this, 
back in 2011, you started this organization and carried on this tradition. Can we talk about the why? What, what was it that's, that's, that was the, the, the impetus of, of, of you becoming an activist? Yes, so for Black Nonbelievers, which actually started off and was only intended to be local to the Atlanta area, okay. um, the organization was started because there was a need to increase the representation and build community um, specifically for, for Black folks who either didn't believe anymore, but they couldn't find others either because they were still dealing with a lot of religious family members and friends in the black community. And also that there was still very uh, little representation within the predominantly white secular community. And so we started just to have that local base to build up that local community, start local programming, um, connect with others uh, in the Atlanta area so that we can continue to bridge that gap. Um, at the time that we got started, um, African Americans for Humanism was a well-known pro um, program for from the Center for Inquiry. Mm -hmm. uh, you also have Black Atheists of America, which we had uh, formed a partnership with as well. And also Sakibu Hutchison's organization, Black Skeptics Los Angeles, was right. in existence. So we realized that there were other organizations that were already out there. But we wanted to create a local network in Atlanta where we actually got together and connected with people, not just to have group discussions, but also to have other social networking opportunities, which also expanded to uh, media appearances and other advocacy-based initiatives. Um, because we realized that in order to reach more people, that we had to kind of meet people where they were. Mm. And for me, being having been born and raised in New York City, being a product of the Black community, and also being of hip hop culture and mm. also of a pop culture, we realized that there was something unique that we brought to the table and how we connected with folks. We wanted to include our ability to have intellectual discussions, uh, foster critical thinking, but also have more action and definitely social based uh, initiatives. Mm. Interesting. There was a quote that I found from of you, you'd uh, that you'd said that um, you struggle. You can't be proud of the way that many people in the black community continue to embrace unfounded religious beliefs um, and will admonish those who do not. And you talked about critical thinking being um, you said is at, is at a, an all time low uh, in, in the black community. And I'm wondering when I read that, I was like, man, that's that's that's, that's a huge problem. I feel like it's a it's a problem everywhere I look right now, basically, when you see the problem of critical thinking, how do you begin to approach that? Well, first, I mean, it, it's, I don't wanna, I don't wanna dismiss all, everyone in the black community or everyone else as, right. as being, uh, as not being critical thinkers, because there are a lot of us who are. The problem is that there are many people whose critical thinking stops when it comes to their religious beliefs. And much of it is out of fear and much of it is out of um, this need to definitely hold on to, you know, to this divine entity, even if they are passionate about like racial justice and, and white supremacy and such. 
But and unfortunately, it, t- it still tends to be the elephant in the room conversation mm-hmm. within the black community. It is often still very taboo um, to even discuss non-belief and atheism and the fact that there are more people, there are more of us who are actually openly expressing our, our, um, you know, our, our perspectives and that we are challenging the institution of the church and its hold on the black community. And so it's been, it's been, uh, you know, you kind of chip away a little at a time, you know, you, you know, you, you sort of plant those seeds you let people know that we're here and that we're we're people and that we can have these conversations objectively if possible. Um, it's, it isn't always going to be easy, but what I found best uh, that best works for, for me and, and the organization is to definitely reach those people who are already there and who are definitely on their way out. Mm-hmm. Uh, because, and, and that um, we don't expect that we are all going to agree on everything as a community um, and as a people, but that our presence uh, is not just um, acknowledged or accepted, but that um, you know you're not going to be able to hide from it. Mm. And so we're just trying to chip away a little bit at a time uh, and to you know help others find find that space and uh, instead of just trying to go in, for the argument, because mm. we really would like to foster a sense of unity, but there also needs to be more education and understanding, and also uh, more believers need to go beyond their um, what they've uh, been either taught or um, or the information that has been hidden about non-believers. Mm. Do, you, do you feel like that that the the religious sort of structure that you see in the United States and in, in within the black community. I mean, it, it seems to me, and I, I, I think your perspective on this is gonna be more valuable than mine, that this was something that was forced onto African-Americans. That we're, when, we're, when we're talking about Christianity and especially the legacy of, of slavery, I, I wonder to what, to what extent in your experience you find the people receptive to this idea that, that this religious tradition is something that at the outset was was imposed. Actually, if you uh, look through black history in particular, you will see that there has been um, historically through people like Malcolm X mm. um, and, and others who have charged Christianity in particular as being the, uh, the religion that enslaved our ancestors and our communities. Um, that has certainly been the case. And there are a lot more people who are willing to uh, charge the traditional church as being very harmful, ultimately. And there is a lot of criticism of, of the pastors that we see, those who just try to get every last dollar out of their, their members and the community. Uh, but what becomes more challenging is the notion that or the the realization that you don't have to believe in any of it and that um, there are other religions and other uh, spiritual beliefs are just as harmful. And that for many in the black community who have done away with the forced um, narrative of white Jesus and, and yeah. fundamental Christianity, um, that 
putting, you know, um, you know, putting black Jesus or, or, you know, or, or more identifiable faces to those beliefs doesn't necessarily mean that we're more liberated. It's a step. Hmm. It's a step away from the Eurocentric ideas and uh, the white supremacist ideas, but um, it doesn't undo the doctrine in which, and it doesn't, it, it doesn't, uh, chip away at those roots of white supremacy, right. which is still enforced, even if you put more of an identifiable, or even if you put more black faces to it. So it's it's tr it's a matter of trying to really, really get to that root of what that issue really is, and that many religions and the God concepts have ultimately been damaging to not just our communities and society at large, but also how we deal with each other, how um, we have, um, you know, how, how basically uh, that, that sense of, you know, patriarchy and, 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 and everything else that is damaging has really affected our lives and how, and, and how we interact. And so really, really getting to the root of that is, is what can be a challenge, um, sure. but, Ultimately, there have always been folks within the black community who have critiqued and challenged the church and have charged it with being harmful, even if uh, that particular, um, even if that particular perspective is still kind of buried. Yeah. It's, what goes through your mind when you hear people talk about the, like the civil rights movement as an extension of, of Christianity or try to take um, credit for it, especially when believers try to take credit for, for that? Oh, we, I immediately bite back against that. I immediately fight back and um, am and, and, and quick to remind folks that there were humanists, there were uh, other religious folks who were involved with that movement. For example, A. Philip Randolph, who was one of the key organizers for the March on Washington. Yeah. Uh, we're quick to remind folks that Bayard Rustin, even though he grew up as a Quaker um, and who was LGBTQ, was one of Dr. King's closest advisors and he was all but written out of history books until recently. Yeah. And so when we also look at, we can also point to um, Dr. King's writings and, and, the, and, the, and the history of that day and show that there were many churches that were reluctant to get involved sure. in the protest and um, in the civil rights movement, understandably so because it was very dangerous even in the South, but many of them had a um, sit back and wait on God. And, and, and definitely like a conservative view to it. So um, mm. when, you know, we, we're definitely quick to point this out and say, no, 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 <laughs> you know, that is not, uh, that isn't entirely accurate, you know, especially as we, you know, as, as a community and, and we as non-believers and we as skeptics and, and such, um, we hold evidence and information very valuable. And so we are quick to refute that. Right, right. It's a thing that, I mean, I hear it a lot. Um, one thing that it, I can't believe how often it comes up, especially when talking to uh, Christian apologists here in the United States, is the subject of slavery and how quick people are to defend biblical notions of slavery or to excuse it away. And and I, I know you've heard them, that people saying things like, well, there there would still be slavery in the United States if it wasn't for the Christians who fought against it, or there, or there wouldn't have been a civil rights movement if it wouldn't have been for Christianity specifically. And uh, it's, it's, uh, 
a head scratcher, man. <laughs> right, isn't it interesting how it negates itself? Because I would have, because I was formally, I wasn't formally raised religious. Um, mm. I had no idea that there were Christians who actually said, thank God for slavery until I got involved in this movement. I mean, it was, a, it's appalling to actually hear that. I mean, because I did grow up learning about how Christianity in particular was forced uh, on, our, uh, on our ancestors. And I was also kind of, uh, I was also befuddled as to why there are so many Christians, even though you begin to understand the history of it and the institutional aspect, but to actually hear that, but then you have, um, and it's also an example of people, how people cherry pick what they believe or what's in that Bible and yeah. um, how so many people don't actually read it for themselves. Uh, they don't read the entire text because if they did, then they would realize that uh, the God that they believe in really isn't benevolent and loving at all. So yeah, uh, yeah it's, it's ultimately going to be up to those folks to be, to take a hard and honest look at what they believe and acknowledge that it's it, it's never it's never been perfect, but that it definitely is not perfect. Right, right. I wonder because you, you touched on this. So I grew up out on the West Coast, and um, in in 2007 I moved to uh, to North Carolina. And before I went to North Carolina, I spent some time in Georgia, and in South Carolina, and in Virginia. And my little dumb ass grew up thinking that I mean, because where I grew up, it was so diverse. I. I I really thought that we lived in essentially like a post-racial society. And then I moved to the South and was like, yo, <laughs> like, what is this? And, like seeing the Confederate flags, I'd never seen anything like that. I was, I was 22 years old looking around like with my jaw on the floor, like this is real, holy shit. Um, I was like, this is like in the movies. <laughs> yeah. So when you went from New York down to Georgia, I mean, how, how much of a shock did you go through? I felt like it was, I couldn't believe it. Well, the shock that I learned or that I experienced when I moved to Georgia was um, how many black folks and black women asked me what church do I go to? Mm. That was definitely a shock for me. I said, wait a minute, who asks that question? Now, because I had learned about how there are very, very, very racist places in the Midwest, yeah. even in New York state, even in certain parts of California and, and also how, because if you look through history and when racial tensions and relations and how they, you know, and how they emerged in very major cities, Los Angeles being one of them, yeah. uh, where the, when we saw in the nineties with, you know, the OJ Simpson trial and the Rodney King verdict and how that stuff really didn't go away. So I actually expected to see more of it in the South because of not just learning about that, but also learning about the ugly racist history. Um, but uh, at the time, having moved to the Atlanta area, which was more progressive, is more metropolitan, you did, I did see more um, black growth. Uh, there was a lot of, um, you know, definitely a lot more black professionals out there. And so that was good. But when you when you visit the rest of Georgia, you see that uh, <laughs> it, it's it's quite different, <laughs> and yeah. there's also this sense of people. Certain people need to stay in their place, mm. and so it's like wow. Um, 
you know, you, you find that it's like, okay. But yeah. um, the culture shock was really that religion and Christianity was just so pervasive mm. um, that it, that, that really, really astounded me. It's well, and it's interesting. I like, I'm not in any sense suggesting that racism is not a problem on the West coast where I was at. Oh, I just, it just wasn't on my radar as a little white kid growing yeah. up, you know? And it's, so it's, I mean, I look at it now like cuisine, it's just like different flavors and yes. regionally uh -huh. but it's, it's, it's wherever you go, there it is. But, um, well, right. Well, I think <laughs> yes. for us, you know, as, as you know, from the black community, unfortunately, you tend to expect it wherever you go. And mm -hmm. I, I mean, I'm glad that you had the upbringing where it was so diverse. And I can't say this for every black person. Right. You know, I, I can't speak to all of us and say that all of us experience racism because not all of us have. And, and I definitely want to make that clear. Um, I was just saying that from my perspective of having been raised in such a uh, socially conscious household and having learned about all of this, that um, it really wasn't a surprise for me to know that there were still very, very racist people out there, whether it was overt or subliminal. Yeah, yeah. Well, okay, so because we're, we only got about 20 minutes left. I want to ask. So there's four questions that I've been asking all of my guests because my my channel and my work, I'm very, very focused on epistemology, very focused on scientific skepticism, trying to ask better questions, trying to, in my own life, especially more than anywhere else, just trying to be less wrong about stuff all the time. And uh, so there's there's four questions I've been asking everybody. The first one is, if you were to identify one key feature of what sound epistemology looks like to you, what would it be? And the way that I asked this question in a better way, <laughs> started with Eric Murphy when he was on, uh, was if you could wave a magic wand and give everybody one tool to be a better skeptic, what would you give them? Uh, empathy. Okay. I would give empathy because, um, and it doesn't mean that you have to be completely tolerant of the opposing view, but understanding why they believe what they do and not just ridiculing outright mm. uh, because there are many atheists and non-believers who have been where, uh, where many of these believers are. And the fact that indoctrination comes in many forms, even though I wasn't formally raised religious, I was still indoctrinated. And so there were things that I had to unlearn and, I also had to come to the realization and understanding that there are simply people who were raised and who did not, who, who simply did not know. And, and they do not know how to, um, you know, how to think independently and also to understand how to overcome that fear as well. So it mm -hmm. is a challenge. And I think being more empathetic and being more understanding, not to the point where there's pity, but definitely um, more understanding and, and having more empathy and compassion. That's an interesting question, especially what you said at the end about pity, because there's conversations I've been having with a lot of people about what's the best way to talk to people when they're, especially if they're, if they're you know, sharing with you a view that, that might be, you might think of as being like morally reprehensible. Um, you know, how gentle do you be with people? How, how aggressive do you be? Um, 
Do, do you have any thoughts on, on that in terms of how, if someone just throws like the, the worst idea on the table, how do you, how do you address that in, in an empathetic way? Well, it's interesting because uh, five years ago, I was actually faced with that. There was a woman who approached me at a conference. Um, it was at an atheist conference and there was also a Christian conference at the same time. And there was a black woman. At the same venue? At, yes, the same venue uh, in Atlanta. <laughs> oh and uh, you can actually, you, if you search the internet, it, it's actually still there um, because the, the woman approached me and, and she was rather nasty. And so I politely introduced myself and tried to explain the premise of my organization. And she just re rebuffed it with the whole, well, atheism is just another religion. And so once I realized that I couldn't talk with her, I just said to her that she didn't have to be disrespectful. Right. And so when I said that, you know, that's when she just went off. And so I think <laughs> it always depends on the level of engagement if people are actually willing to have a sound conversation, once you realize that they aren't, you have every right to shut it down and step away because it just isn't worth that time and energy. Um, I have, um, you know, I encourage uh, many people, uh, to uh, many atheists and non-believers, to shut it down if they have to, especially if they think that it is going to be an exercise in futility and frustration because. No one has the right to, to take that from you, to, your, to take your peace of mind. And we've had to work hard at it. Yeah. Yeah. And no, so, uh, yeah, for sure. absolutely. Boundaries are, are um, and very important. Hmm. Well, that's, yeah, that's very interesting. And, and, and I, I wish people recognize more often how often it is that if you're trying to be, you know, super rational, super skeptical, you, someone else in a conversation might not be playing by the same rules that you are. Mm -hmm. And, uh, yep. and like you're saying, it, it, there, there may come a point where you have to recognize that they're playing a different game than you and, and, and disengage. Um, yeah. Um, the second question that I've been asking everybody, I keep going off on rabbit tracks it, uh, <laughs> is, is where do you, where do you see bad epistemology most obviously manifesting in the world today? Um, for me lately, it's been on Twitter. I'm, it's just like, it's everywhere I look, but, but where do you, where are you seeing it? Definitely on Facebook and sometimes Instagram as well. Uh, we live in that social media age where it's so easy to, uh, post something that, uh, people may see from other sources and it just, it may get a like, it may get some attention, but it isn't necessarily uh, well-researched or well-informed. And so for those who do not, um, you know, who don't utilize those critical thinking skills, you know, uh, when they should get caught up in that. And um, I definitely see it a lot on, on definitely in, in Facebook groups where there is um, a bit more, uh, there's more of an opportunity to say what you may want um, as opposed to Twitter where, you know, you're limited to uh, certain characters. I mean, um, but I, I definitely see that. Uh, and then, you know, there's other, um, there's other forums like Reddit. I definitely see it in YouTube <laughs> on the YouTube comment section. Yeah. You know, there's always a, there's always a warning. Don't read the comments. Yes. <laughs> so there are a number of places where I see that. It's interesting on the platforms that, like Facebook and, and, and Instagram, where the incentive is to get likes, the incentive is not 
to tell the truth or to make sense or to be honest or, or intelligent. It's that, that incentive problem gets us all in trouble, especially when people read stuff thinking, well, yeah, they're just being honest with me, but that's not what the game, <laughs> again, it's a different game being played <laughs> than what you might be thinking. Um, right. Man. Yeah. The, how, how, how much do you engage with all that social media stuff? Well, I'm on Facebook a lot because I do moderate our, um, our closed, mm. uh, the, the closed black non-believers pay a group, um, the support group rather, you know, sometimes we'll just shoot the, shoot the shit or, but then, you know, sometimes we, uh, you know, we, we mock certain things, but I do, uh, make sure that everyone is, um, you know, being cordial towards each other, even in disagreement. Mm. And um, I'll just look at the comments. Um, I'll just make sure, like, if I am looking in on other, like, public pages and if I'm in some other groups, I do tend to, um, I do tend to see how they engage and I'll just say, oh, you know, I'll make sure I stay away from that. <laughs> but mm -hmm. And I said, hey, y'all can keep that over there. Don't bring yeah. that into my form. Don't bring that into my space. So, um, you know, I, I tend to, I have to watch that very carefully. And sometimes I may go over to Twitter if something, maybe I, I tend to stay away from trending topics, mm. even though I know I should probably, you know, maybe, maybe be just a little bit more aware of them. But, um, you know, I, I try not to go down any rabbit holes like too, too much. Uh, but uh, I, I sometimes I will look at certain things and I'm just like, huh, okay. Um, I'm kind of glad I'm not in this argument or this conversation. <laughs> so right, right, usually, right, right. What I, usually what I try to do is make my point within two to three posts or comments. And if it isn't making the point by then, then I just disengage. I just yeah. say forget it. Well, you, I mean, you're more, more, you're more emotionally mature than I am because I... <laughs> <laughs> I get all mad. It's hard anyway. sometimes. It's hard. Like, stop reading that stuff. And I'm like, I can't. Anyway, um, <laughs> so we talk about bad epistemology out in the world. In your own life, this is the third question I've been asking everybody. Where do you see bad epistemology or bad skepticism or a lack of skepticism in your own day-to-day -day life? Oh, boy. So I, um, in my, definitely my personal life, um, now, I, we're, I, I have a very non-religious household, um, but I'm also dealing with a partner who has uh, sickle cell anemia. And what mm. that does is it, it not only deteriorates the body, but also the brain. And what's happening there is that when, when, when people who are sick um, are used to doing things a certain way and they're used to being catered to and they're used to having a certain amount of attention, sometimes the, uh, the accountability is lacking. And so there is a, you know, there is a want to always be right, but to never be held responsible for the mm -hmm. things that they may do that are harmful. And I'm also I also see that in some of my other family members um, who and, and I have a pretty diverse family in myself. Some of my relatives, some of my cousins are nonbelievers, um, but some of them are like loosely spiritual, but not necessarily fully religious. And I do see quite a bit of that. And I know it's um, <clears throat> it's pretty much a part of human nature for people to just kind of want the easy answers for the easier solutions. And it's easier to talk about change rather than actually doing it. Um, but that is what I 
see the most uh, in in my personal space is that um, there are still others who um, do not want to actually do that work to be accountable, not just to themselves, but to the others around them. And sometimes that can be a challenge. And I realized that I had to do it. You know, I had to do it for myself. Um, whatever I went through and experienced growing up did not have to define me as an adult. It also did not have to define how I raised my children um, completely. You know, I could show that I could overcome these things and be a better person uh, for myself and my family. And uh, there are still a lot of people who are playing catch up to that. And so what I what I have to what I realize that I have to do is um, sometimes I have to separate myself. Yeah. And realize yeah. that I cannot I don't I cannot save everyone. That's not what I'm here for. I'm not God. <laughs> no. Well, I'm better than a god, but you know, <laughs> right, right. You're real. That that helps. Um, yes. Yeah. Uh, and and that 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 question is one that I, I I ask everybody because it drives me crazy seeing people in the especially in the online skeptic atheist space talking about irrationality like it's something that only happens to other people. Right. Um, so it, I mean, we all we all have to be aware of where. As, as best as we can of where our blind spots are and, and where these these topics, these issues, these these cognitive uh, you know traps affect us and our, our loved right. ones. And there's nothing um, wrong with admitting it, you know, just being yeah. honest about it. it helps a lot. Yeah. Um, so the this last question is very open-ended and we've talked a, a, we touched on your work here. Um, and, and so this is I think gonna lead into hopefully more of that. How do you think we should communicate the importance of skepticism and sound epistemology to people? Um, I definitely think that tact is is important. Mm. Um, how we do it is more important is definitely as important as what we're doing. And making it creative is, uh, you know, it, it's creativity is not the enemy of information and education. And realizing that there are various ways to do it. Um, you know, you definitely, um, we, we talked about, you know, like some of those hard line approaches and sometimes having a more, uh, softer approach, depending on who it is that we're, that we're engaging. And I think it's good for us to, um, you know, to, to kind of, you know, to kind of understand and kind of filter out, um, how we talk about it, when, if it's the right time and, uh, also, uh, you know, how, and also, uh, how we do it. And uh, whether we realize that um, the individuals are ready for the information or, or, or not. And so um, I know many of us kind of want uh, this to be an overnight process and it isn't, <laughs> you know, just as, the, yeah. just as the indoctrination and the institutional factors did not happen overnight, it isn't going to be changed overnight. And so um, sometimes it may need to be introduced at many times. It may need to be introduced in bits and pieces, and sometimes we can we can definitely incorporate it. Uh, we can definitely incorporate some fun into it, um, along with the seriousness. And I think that that is important for us to realize that it isn't a one size approach. So, uh, one, and then also that there are many outlets and avenues that we can do it. Whether it is through our YouTube platforms whether it is through our organizational, um, you know, through our organizations, through social media, through, through everything that we do that, right. um, and it's a lot, it is a lot to take on. It is a lot to, <laughs> um, 
you know, to, to really, um, really comprehend and, and, and just really start doing. But the more we do it and the more we practice it, the better we get. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good, that's such a good point. Yeah. yeah about wanting to, everybody wanting to rush it. I, I yeah, I feel that. Um, let me ask you this, because you talk about, I mean, when we talk about all the different ways to be, to be doing what we're doing, um, if, if you were to give people, I mean, you hear the same names repeated over and over and over and over again in the, in the skeptic world. Everybody's got a copy of like the God delusion. Everybody mm-hmm. knows who, you know, everybody knows, everybody's watched Matt Dillahunty, you know, doing his thing. Um, mm-hmm. If you were to give, say, three names of, of black thinkers, whether they be, you know, present day or, or not, content creators, writers, you know, thinkers, who, who would you want to most elevate and put in front of people to be like, look at how these people are doing it? Definitely Sakibu Hutchinson. Um, Sakibu Hutchinson, whose recent uh, book, Humanist in the Hood, mm-hmm. is, um, you know, uh, was released uh, in 2020. And it talks about definitely the intersection of humanism and definitely feminism within um, the black community and the secular community. I would like to elevate uh, Chris Cameron, whose um, book, Black Freethinkers, A History of African-American Secularism is an awesome resource uh, to uh, understanding the history of black free thought from slavery to now. See, and, uh, and, and that's, I, 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 don't know, I don't know him. So that's, that's yeah. there's one for me. Absolutely. The final would be Candace Gorham, who okay. wrote the Ebony Exodus Project uh, back, it was released in 2013. And it talks about how black women are leaving religion. And she's a, a clinical, she's a, she's a therapist. So um, yes, mm-hmm. I would say that these are just three of, of, of uh, black atheists, freethinkers and humanists whose work deserves to be elevated and supported just as much as the Richard Dawkins. Right. And the same, and I love Matt. I love Matt to pieces. <laughs> same, same. But, uh, Matt's, yeah. Matt's been huge for me and helping me get out of, of absolutely. My, yeah. my, me too. Um, uh, however, I, I do, th- there are many, many more black content creators, activists, organizers, besides myself who have contributed significant work and they're going to contribute more. And it's going to be up to all of us. You know, we as, as an organization of uh, Black nonbelievers, we center Black voices. We center Black activism. And that is something that we will never apologize for. However, we still need the help and the support of the overall community in order for us to do that. Because we have become that resource. You know, people will come to us and ask, you know, who can, you know, who can they reach out to, you know, if they would like, you know, if they want to refer, you know, they want speakers or, you know, or, 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 or um, resources for people. And so this is, this is a part of the work that we do and it's extremely important. Now you got the 10th anniversary coming up, yes. right? Can, yes. can we talk about that? Yes, I would love to. <laughs> so uh, we did decide to proceed with the in-person celebration, which will be smaller and uh, will be a safe and socially distanced event. Um, This will take place from January 15th through the 17th in New Orleans, which is now one of my uh, newest favorite cities. (laughs) 
And, and um, we're talking about the 10th anniversary of Black Nonbelievers. For, I correct. didn't intro that well. So, yeah. Correct, yes. The 10th anniversary of Black Nonbelievers as an organization. Right. We got started in January of 2011 and January of 2021. We'll make 10 years of our existence. And um, we will be featuring um, speakers, activists, and allies who we have connected with since our day one, you know, over the course of 10 years. And the weekend is probably too short of a time to elaborate on a 10 year history. So we will be celebrating it all year. Um, Folks can also register to stream it online. Uh, we, We do have that option, but we really do need support in order to make this a successful hybrid event Um, To stream it online is a small fee of $5. Uh, We hope that people will contribute a few bucks on top of that uh, in order to support the event, though, a bit more. And so we're looking forward to some fantastic presentations and just a good time for those who still do choose to attend in person. We certainly welcome you, but we definitely are going to make sure that everyone remains safe. And to just if you if you uh, if you want, if you haven't. Um, if you don't know about Black Nonbelievers and our work, this is certainly a great opportunity to learn. Awesome. Awesome. Buy the stream, people. It's $5. Come on. <laughs> yeah. Come on. <laughs> cool. Well, again, Mandisa, thank you so much for being here. Um, thank you again, for having me. More chances to talk in the future. And, and next time we got to talk about who the best rappers from Queens are. I don't know if there's any place on earth that's produced more. I mean, absolutely. The more prolific, the most prolific. Run DMC, LL, yeah. a Nas. tribe called Quest, or a tribe Nas. Yes. Public Enemy. Everybody's um, from Queens, right? I mean, well, Chuck D is from Long Island, oh, so, okay. which is right well, next to Queens, right? And and as well as Flavor Flav. So there might yeah. be some some okay. guys there from Queens. All right, but. all right, all right. Cool. All right. Well, thanks again. I appreciate it. Thank you. We'll cut, we'll cut it right there. That'll be the thing. So okay. awesome. cool. Oh my God. I'm so, I'm so happy we got to do this. Yeah. Um, same here. Thank you. Are you on the road right now? Are you traveling? Actually? Yes. Uh, my husband and I um, took a few days uh, in Destin. So I'm actually on central time. Awesome. <laughs> so, awesome. so yeah, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm streaming through my Chromebook and uh, definitely wanted. So this has been a working uh, thing for me, which cool. That was great because now I can work from anywhere. Right, right. Well, what I'm going to do is I'm going to compile a whole bunch of, of links um, and I'll put them all in the description. We'll put the the uh, link to the, the upcoming 10th anniversary event in there and everything as well. Um, and uh, yeah, this will be up. Ethan will edit it, do the cuts and everything where they need to be. Um, okay. And uh, when when it's coming up, I'll I'll hit you with it on on Twitter and. Awesome. I'll do that. Cool. Awesome. Thanks again. All right. Have a great night. You too. Bye-bye.